Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. <laughs> Why don't y'all keep the praise going for a God who's in control? Who a God that never lies? Because he's been in control. That means you got an assurance of victory. If God's in control, that means I don't got to fight by myself. If God is in control, that means that I have joy for tomorrow. Somebody ought to praise God that he's in control. Y'all may be seated if you can, if you can. Y'all may be seated. Y'all may be seated. <laughs> I appreciate y'all. <laughs> I appreciate y'all. I appreciate y'all. <laughs> so as y'all can see, it's your favorite guy, Krusty K. Who's about to give the word today? Um, I really want to give honor and praise to Pastor B and Lady Ty. Um, Pastor B was in desperate need of rest, so you guys are stuck with me today. All right, so we're, um, I'm excited about the word that God has today. I believe that um, it's going to be on time, and I'm, I'm going to need some help, y'all. This is a heavy one. This is a heavy one for sure. So you guys, are, we're going to just start right in. You guys already know I got to give shout out to the best ghostwriter I got, my wife. Can y'all give some shout out for my wife? All right, y'all, we're going to get right, we're going to get started. We're going to get started. If y'all can open y'all Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If y'all got it, can you say amen? amen? All right, we're going to be reading from the New King James Version because I'm a good old Pentecostal boy. All right, so I like the thou shalt not, you can't, all that good stuff. So we're going to read from the New King James today. <laughs> I start. <laughs> Yo, let's go, let's go from verse 1. Let's go from verse 1. This is what Paul says. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up, not to the first, not to the second, but to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard unexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, Yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone shall think of me above what he sees to me or hears from me. Verse 7, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted be of above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded to the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me this, my grace 
of God. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength will be made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. I believe someone's in need of strength today. I believe someone's been looking for strength today. And the, the title of this meditation is going to be called A Gift Wrapped in Thorns. A Gift Wrapped in Thorns. And I hope y'all praying for me. I hope y'all praying for me. I'm going to need help. All right, every head bowed, all eyes closed. Father God, we come before you submitting to your control. Lord, we submit, Lord, that we can trust you to be in the driver's seat. We can trust you to be the master of our lives. And Father, Lord, I just ask for this, that your presence and your truth will be made evident today. Lord, the people today don't need to hear flattering words or a nice speech or nice analogies or illustrations, but the people need the power of God. So I pray, Lord, that your power will fall on this place, will crawl on everyone under the sound of my voice. And I just pray, Lord, that when we leave today, we'll leave trusting you just a little bit more. We'll leave believing in you just a little more. We say this all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. A gift wrapped in thorns. Y'all may not know this, but my wife and I are actually approaching two years of marriage in June. <laughs> two years of marriage. Now, I've only been married for a short period of time, but I, I feel like I've learned a lot of stuff. But I, I've learned how to handle finances. I learned how to navigate our extended families. I learned how to prioritize romance and busy seasons. But out of all the lessons that I've learned, do you know the most important lesson I've learned? See, this is not to say that finances, family, or um, romance aren't important. Any married couple would tell you otherwise. But I would argue that the most important lesson I've learned is conflict resolution. Conflict resolution. You see, I've learned throughout these two years that my wife and I handle conflict very differently. You see, I'm very methodical while my wife is very psychological. But I like to focus on outcomes when my, life, when my wife likes to focus on motives. And sometimes these two different approaches to conflict can form a point of contention. Sometimes it can cause some point of conflict. Because when a problem or an issue arises, my first instinct is to find a solution. My first instinct is to fix it. My first instinct is to do something about it. Like I, I, it it's kind of what I do for work, that I, I literally get paid to kind of find solutions. I, I like to think that I'm pretty good at it. But the funny thing is something that makes me successful in my career can be harmful in my marriage. Okay. So, <laughs> don't, 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 don't get me stirred up too early. Don't get me stirred up too early. Y'all know how I get. Y'all know how I get. So this is what happens. This is what happens. So when my wife would come to me about her problems, about what she's going through, my first instinct was like, okay, what can I do about it? What can I do to make her feel better? What can I do to fix it? But the more I tried to fix it, the more my wife felt isolated. And I was just confused. 
I was like, what am I doing? I feel like I'm giving Oprah-level advice here. I feel like I'm killing the game. I feel like I'm doing everything right. But I talked to my wife, and she taught me something that I would never forget. My wife told me that she wasn't coming to me to fix a problem. She was coming to me to support her in the midst of the problem. See, I'm, not, I'm trying not to preach early. I'm trying not to preach early. But the thing is that my wife was explaining to me that she isn't a project under construction. She's a partner looking to be understood. <laughs> y'all brothers, hey, y'all getting me messed up. Y'all about to get me messed up. Micah, y'all about to get me messed up here. Y'all got to get me messed up. <laughs> you see, my, my wife was teaching me there that she was looking for intimacy. She was looking for intimacy. And I kid you not, when my wife told me this, I heard the voice of God. I heard the voice of God speaking to me. Someone said, amen, strong. <laughs> and so what I tell you, this is what the Lord told me. This is what the Lord told me. He told me, Caleb, a lot of people are coming to me to fix their problem when I'm more interested in supporting them in the middle. I'm more interested in supporting them in the process. And I, I know some of you guys are confused why. Some of you guys are confused, asking yourself, why is this happening? But today, my mission is to show you that God's way of doing things is grace. God's way of doing these things is grace. If I went around the room, if I, went, if I gave everyone a mic and I asked you guys, what is your definition of grace? I believe more or less you guys would give me the same answer. On one side, some people would say that grace is the unmerited favor of God. On the other side, people would say that grace is getting something that you don't deserve. And others would just say that grace is a free gift to us. And while I affirm all these definitions, all these attributes of grace to be true and biblical, today I want to explore a different side of grace. A side of grace that doesn't feel like grace at all. Because today I want to make a claim. I want to make a claim real early that Grace is not only what God did for you, but grace is also what God didn't do. See, I want to show somebody today that it was grace that God didn't give you the relationship you desperately wanted. It was grace that God didn't give you the job you thought you needed. It was grace that God kept a door closed that you repeatedly try to open time and time again. People of God, I want to show you that God can't give you some things because if he did, he will never see you again. It was grace. It was grace. And this is the grace I want to explore today. This is the grace I want to impact today. Because while I believe a lot of us are familiar with the idea of saving grace, right? The grace that saves us from our sins. Today, I want to talk about sustaining grace. The grace that won't fail you, even though your faith might. You see, Dr. Maurice Watson says it like this. Grace is not only present when God gives you what you don't deserve, but grace is also present when God allows, allows you to experience something that you don't like. See, we see both of these graces operating in the text today. And my mission is to explore that tension. Explore the tension in the text because this passage shows us three movements. It shows us that Paul has a problem. God gives them provision, and Jesus gives them a promise. Let me do some background work for y'all. Let me do some background work. We know that this letter is titled 2 Corinthians, but a lot of scholars suggest that this is actually the fourth letter Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. You see, Paul references a, a separate, distinct letter in 1 Corinthians, separate from this one. 
And even in 2 Corinthians, he references an entirely different letter altogether, one that he describes as being very emotional, very tearful. And the reason why this is important, because this shows us that Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church was complicated. It was a little messy. See, we know that Paul was the one who planted the church. He's the one that found the church. And he even installed leaders. He's installed elders to the church. But after he left, Paul kept getting reports that the Corinthian church had problems. Problems after problems after problems. And we certainly see this in 1 Corinthians because Paul has to address division in the church. He has to address sexual immorality. He has to address the administrative administration of gifts. He has to set order. We see 1 Corinthians is Paul's desperate attempt to establish some type of structure for the Corinthians to follow. But when we, in this letter, we, we see a different side of Paul. We see a Paul that feels a little broken. He feels a little, he, he feels hurt. And it's almost as if he's starting to let his frustrations out a bit. Because you see, right now, the Corinthian church has an even greater problem than before. Because right now, Paul is being attacked by people who will call themselves super apostles. They will call themselves super apostles, and these super apostles were bringing very harsh accusations against Paul. They were saying that, you know, Paul, you're a good writer, but you really can't preach. That your mouth don't really match your pen. You know, I mean, essentially, they were saying that, Paul, you really only got Twitter fingers. You know, you be talking that talk online, but you can't really back it up in person. You know what I mean? They were really calling Paul a punk. Now, I want you guys to imagine, what if someone today came into our church and called our pastor a punk? Called our pastor, said he couldn't preach. He said, stop it. Amen. I would feel the same way. I would feel the same way. But these are the rumors spreading around in the Corinthian church. This is what Paul has to deal with. And the gossip has grown so thick that the people are starting to question Paul's authority. They're starting to think that. They're like, man, is Paul really a punk? Uh, you know, not, not that I think about it, he really can't preach like that. He really isn't, and he hasn't seen us in a while. And the people are starting to look at Paul differently, and they don't think that Paul got the same clout as these other super apostles. Now, I know a lot of you guys are thinking like, well, this, is, this sounds a little OD. This sounds mad petty. Like, why, why are these super apostles in competition with Paul? But people of God, if we were to be honest today, I, I would say that religious Christians are some of the most competitive people you might meet. See, look, I, I, I know that this doesn't happen here. I know it doesn't. But, you know, some people actually like to pit churches against each other. You know, some people like to say, you know, look, my church has the best worship or our church has the best word or our church has the best ministry. They do it so much that people actually like to compete against or rank other ministers. You know, some people, I, look, I know it doesn't happen here. I'm certain. But, you know, some people actually like to be like, you know, I actually kind of prefer Yolanda's teaching over Pastor B's. You know, uh, you know, dang, Caleb and Warner are preaching today? Why can't Pastor B preach every Sunday? And, and y'all know everyone has their favorite worship leader. Everyone's like, oh, well, this person, I like, they, they sing a lot of CCM. Or this person, I really like their gospel. Or, you know, this person's voice, there's some oil in that voice. There's some type of anointing they have in that voice. And we do it so much that some of us actually get jealous when we see a ministry prospering more than ours. You see, I know, I know, I know it doesn't happen here. I'm certain. But this is what Paul is dealing with. This is what Paul is dealing with because these super apostles are claiming to be better than Paul. 
They're claiming that they actually have revelation from God that surpasses what Paul got. And so, and the people are starting to buy into the lie so much, they're questioning whether they should follow Paul at all. They're thinking, man, maybe I should go to these super apostles. Maybe I should follow them. And so as Paul is hearing all these accusations, as Paul is hearing all of these attacks, Paul starts to pen his defense. Paul starts to pen his defense, and we're in the middle of this defense in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, did I do a good job painting the context for y'all? All right, so let's dig in a little bit, all right? Let's see what Paul says. Pick me up on verse 1. This is what Paul says. He says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one, I will boast. Yet of myself, I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees to be or hears from me, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. I want you to stop right there. I want you to stop right there because we see Paul is actually getting a little petty here. He's actually being very sarcastic because he's like, you know, I know a guy, the guy really being himself. He's like, you know, I know a guy that actually got visions that are way better than these so-called super apostles. He says the vision was so thick that he's actually seen things that they can't even fathom, things that they can't even imagine. Paul is claiming that he had such a supernatural encounter with God that he actually went up to the third heaven. Now, like I said, I don't know what the third heaven is. I was like, how'd you get past the first and the second? I don't know what the third heaven is, but what I do know is that Paul's seen it. And he's claiming to actually have seen paradise. Now, to Paul's credit, he's trying to be humble because he's like, you know, I shouldn't really be talking about this for real. Like, I shouldn't, I got to keep this on the hush-hush, but since y'all disrespecting me, since y'all stressing me, since y'all pressing me, I got to show y'all that I'm really him. Like, I got to show y'all that I'm somebody. And so Paul's really starting to flex a little bit, but I really want to highlight this revelation because can you imagine to have such an intense encounter with God? Like, I, I I really want you to picture it. I really want to picture if God showed you all his mysteries, all his wonder, all his splendor, if you were able to see heaven and see the cherubim and the seraphim and all the angels praising God, you would think that this was the pinnacle of Paul's faith, that this would be a great success, that this is something, Lord, that, that, that we could only dream of. But right now, we see something interesting arises in verse 7. You know, Paul is saying that in the midst of this grand revelation that it's a threat or a temptation arises. The revelation is almost prompting a temptation that the abundance of visions that Paul has seen is actually a threat to Paul's humility. That the revelation from God is actually threatening Paul's humility in God. You know, and the text is teaching us something very interesting. The text is showing us that sometimes our great, the greatest threat we might face 
for our faith is our own success. I want to say that one more time. Your greatest threat in your faith might be your own success. See, you might not realize it, but success can deceive you. Success has a funny way of giving you a false perception of yourself, puffing you up, rubbing your ego, making you feel good. You see, success is like this because success and the praise associated with success can feel like a version of love, a love that's comforting, a love that's affirming, a love that has the image of satisfaction, but it's a love that doesn't last long. Because just like any toxic relationship, success can be addictive. And the more addictive you get to it, the more desperate you are to maintain it. Now, I know some of y'all, y'all won't admit it, but some of us are willing to trade in our godliness if it meant more success. If it meant receiving more success, because this is what happens when you experience success, especially repeated success in a certain area, you have a temptation to make an idol out of yourself, to make an idol out of your gifts, to make an idol out of your intellect, to make an idol out of your abilities. And instead of giving God worship, you desire worship for yourself. You desire someone to praise yourself. Now, because success has a way of building up your pride. Now, like, I know what you guys are thinking. Some of you are like, Caleb, you don't really know me like that. You know what I mean? I'm not really a prideful person. I don't, I'm not arrogant. I don't struggle with that. But I would say a surefire way to understand how prideful you are is to assess how prayerless you are. <laughs> you see, there's a direct correlation between the depth of your pridefulness and your lack of your prayerlessness. You see... Some of us, because only the proud would have the courage to go a day without prayer. Only the proud will have the gall to step out of, your, out of your house and not plead the blood of Jesus. You see, only the proud will go seasons without reading the word. You see, you think that pridefulness is thinking that you're better than everyone else. But pridefulness is just thinking that you can do it on your own. You see, this is the, this is the temptation that Eve faced in the garden. The serpent came to her and said, you don't need God to be like God. You can do it on your own. You don't need to pray before you take that job. You can do it on your own. You don't need to pray before you make a decision. You can do it on your own. You don't need to pray before you get, enter into that relationship. You can do it on your own. You see, pride and the success or the su success and the pride that comes with it makes you think that you have power all by yourself. And this is the danger of success. This is the danger that Paul is facing right now. And in light of this marvelous revelation, Paul's pride is burning inside to consume him. It's burning this inside to, to eat him. But thankfully, we serve a God who understands our desire to be him. Thankfully, we serve a God who sees that. And in response to a revelation that brought Paul to a mountaintop, God gives Paul a gift that will keep him grounded. But the problem is that the gift is something that Paul didn't expect. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Now, I really want to spend time describing this thorn because the word thorn that Paul is using here is literally describing a sharp stake-like object. And Paul is describing his condition as if someone is taking this object and piercing it into his flesh. Piercing it so bad that it's bending, that it's twisting, that it's turning and creating all kinds of pain. Now, we don't exactly know what this thorn is. Some scholars suggest that the thorn is that Paul was an epileptic 
or sorry, I don't, did I say that right? Epileptic? Thank you, thank you. Basically, he had seizures. They suggest that he might have had seizures, and they say this because of some scriptures in Galatians. Others says that the thorn might have been an eye disease, that Paul couldn't really see well, and he needed a scribe to write his letters for him. Even more would say that maybe the thorn was some type of besetting sin, a sin that Paul kept stumbling over time after time after time again, and he couldn't overcome it. Others said that Paul just had an unpleasant appearance, that he was ugly. <laughs> the man was ugly, and then they said that he was so ugly that the people were making fun of him all the time without ceasing. Now, I want to tell y'all that, so that's why, it's, it's the Bible, y'all. That's why Y'all need to read it. Y'all need to read it. See, now, this is, this is what's happening. The truth of the matter is, I don't know what the thorn is. None of us really know what the thorn is, but what we do know is that whatever it is, it bothered him. Whatever it was, it irritated him. And whatever it was, it was a problem that refused to leave him alone. And it persisted so much that it created a sense of insecurity for Paul. It created a sense of weakness for Paul. Now, I just told you, we don't know exactly what the thorn is, but we do know its origin. You see, we don't know exactly what the thorn is, but what we do know is that the thorn that created Paul's insecurity was a gift from God. Now, I want, you to think, I want you guys to think about that for a second. Have you ever considered that your insecurities could be a gift? See, I know. Y'all not going to like this one. I know. But have you considered that the very things that make you insecure was a part of God's design? That your awkwardness was a part of the design? Your timidness was a part of the design? Your, your social anxiety might have been a part of the design. Now, I want to make, sure, make this clear because I'm not here to tell you that God wants you to lack confidence or have low self-esteem. But what I am saying is that God might have given you some securities, some insecurities to keep you dependent on him, to keep you dependent in prayer, to keep you dependent in Bible study, to keep you dependent in discipleship. I'm not saying this because I think God is trying to beat you up, but I am here to say that God is trying to keep you close. God's desire is to keep you close because sometimes God's blessings and our problems can be a package deal. <laughs> See, the Bible says a thorn was given to him. And now this thorn I just described, we know that was aggravating. We know that it was irritating. We know it was something that hurt him in the flesh. But today I want to show you that this, this thorn was not only centrally irritating, it was also satanically influenced. See, let me say it like this. God not only used Paul's insecurities to keep him dependent on him, God used the devil himself. The, this is what the scripture says. It says, unless I should be exalted above, above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, I might mess up somebody's theology a little bit, because a lot of us think that our problems come from the devil alone. A lot of people think that the reason why you're not getting blessed is because of the devil. Because of the devil and his imps. And the reason why you're in this season is because of the devil. But Paul is saying here that not only did God permit the devil to harass him, God was the one who actually sent him. I know. I know. I know it's hard. I know it's hard because you're asking yourself, how are we talking about the grace of God and the devil in the same sentence? How can the grace of God and the devil coexist? Now, like, the, now, I know you won't believe me, but the Bible actually implies that the, the devil and God have a peculiar relationship. 
it, 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 it almost implies that the devil and God be having conversations on the regular. Like I said, I, I, if you guys might not have read it, you guys have heard the story of Job where it seemed, the Bible says that the devil was roaming to and fro from the earth. And it said that the devil actually presented himself to God. And when he presented himself to God, him and God just started chatting it up. They just started talking like it was regular. Like the devil went up to God and said, hey, man, how you doing, bro? Like, man, how are the kids? How are your family? Yo, I actually, you know what? I heard that you got a son coming on the way. Is everything good with that? Are you getting the... God is like, yo, man, thank you for... You know, my son is actually not due for another 500 years. But look, my people are going to keep in contact with your people because it's going to be a whole thing. Like, we're going to have lights. We're going to do something with the stars. We're preparing a wedding. It's going to be... It's going to be a big thing. It's going to be a big thing. And so God and the devil are talking, and then they talk about a particular man. The conversation shifts for them to talk about a man, and this man is so blessed that his, his career is blessed, that his job is blessed, that his family is blessed, that his kids are blessed, and he's so blessed that God calls him blameless. God even says that he, he's blameless and upright, and when the devil hears this, he's like, you know, your man's not even like that for real. He's not even like that for real. If you gave me five minutes with him, I would show you. If you get, Because he really only liked you for your stuff. If you just give me some time with them, I would show you otherwise. And God's like, okay, not too much, not too much. I'll let you play with him, but you only have enough power to do so much. See, y'all might not have caught this. Let me give you another example. We see another example in the Gospel of Luke that when Jesus is talking with the disciples, he pulls Peter to the side. And he's talking to Peter. He was like, yo, Peter, I was actually checking my emails. And the devil, you know, the devil actually wants to connect with you on LinkedIn. You know, like he actually want to set up a meeting or whatever. Like I just wanted to, and Peter's like, wait, whoa, okay. I mean, okay, is, is everything good? Am I all right? And he's like, look, he, he just asked to sift you like wheat. He just asked to, but I told him I'm praying for you, so you're going to be good. And, that, and Peter's like, what? He's like, no, I'm praying for you. You're going to be good. Now, this should be a cause of concern for some of y'all because not only is the devil and Jesus or the devil and God having conversations, but they're having conversations about you. They're having conversations about your job. They're having conversations about your marriage. They're having conversations about what you're doing. And now, let me give you some encouragement because the text suggests that Satan doesn't have free reign over the children of God's life. The, the text suggests to me that some people think that the devil and God are equals, but my Bible tells me that the devil is under God's foot. And so that means anytime, anytime the devil wants to attack me, anytime he wants to derail me, anytime he wants to harass me, he has to ask God permission first. He has to go to God and put in an Amazon request. He got to talk to him first. And if God, if God permits it, that means God sometimes trusts me with trouble. If God is permitting me to be harassed, that means God might trust you with trouble. He might. Now, let me give you a secret because some of us think that God's power is the power to erase trouble. But you see, God's power is the type of power that helps you overcome trouble. You see, you need a type of power that overcomes trouble because God will send some situations in your life just to show you that he has the power to overcome it. That he has the power to overtake it. Because how would you know that God was a healer if you've never been sick? How would you know that God was a provider if you've never been in need? How would you know that God never lost a battle if you've never been on the battlefield? You see, some of us want God to remove us in trouble, but he's actually more interested in keeping us in the midst of it. 
See, this is why I'm pleading for y'all to learn how to pray. This is why I'm telling y'all to learn how to pray because when you pray, you realize that the devil attacking you is just a sign of his insecurity. It's a sign that he's getting nervous. It's a sign that he's starting to feel a little fishy because the devil working your life means that God is working on something better. God is doing something better. You see, you should point to your neighbor right now that God is working something better. He's doing something better for you right now. You see, and Paul is going through this right now. The Bible says a thorn was put in his flesh. A thorn was put in his flesh. Now, I know that some of you guys are feeling a little dismayed because you're asking yourself, dang, why would God use thorns in such a way? This, I know that this message might, I'm trying my best to romanticize it, but I know some of you guys are disheartened. But it's okay for you to be disheartened in this moment because Paul feels the same way. Paul feels the same way. Pick me up on verse 8. This is what Paul says. He says, concerning this thing, this thorn, this satanic attack, this thing that won't leave me, I pleaded to the Lord three times. I pleaded to the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now take a pause right here because Paul right now is at the brink of his agony. And at the brink of his distress, he's pleading to God. He decides that, you know what, in response to my problem, I'm going to go into prayer. You know, Paul has been going to Epiphany Church for a while, and he's actually signed up for God's Seekers, so he, know, he understands the power of prayer. So he mustered up his strength, like, you know what, I'm going to pray to the source. I'm going to talk to the one who's in control. So he went to God and prayed the first time, no answer. He determined to find an answer, Paul goes a second time, and he goes to God saying, God, if you would just remove this thorn, I could be a better preacher. If you move this thorn, I can be better in ministry. If you remove this thorn, I want to feel so insecure. If you remove this thorn, I could be a better apostle. God, won't you do it? No answer. No answer. But Paul mustering up the strength that he can have every living um, part of his body, he goes to God a third time. And this time when he goes to God, the heavens open up. The heaven open up and the spirit descends on him and gives Paul an answer. The problem is, it's not the answer that Paul wanted. It's not the answer that Paul wanted. Pick me up on verse 9. Actually, pick me up on verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. See, Paul asked God to remove the thorn, and God said no. God said no. Not only did he say no, he said that my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. In other words, you have enough to deal with your problem. You have enough to deal with your situation. You see, people of God, this is the type of grace that we don't like to talk about. This is the type of grace that we would rather avoid. See, this isn't the grace that removes trouble, but it's actually a grace that allows trouble to linger. It allows it to linger just a little longer. And now, the obvious question you're asking yourself is why? Why? Why won't God remove it? Why would he keep the thorn? Why would he keep Paul in pain? But I believe that God is trying to teach Paul the same thing he's trying to teach us. Because God is showing Paul that he can do more in Paul with the thorn than he can without. He can do more with Paul in the pain than he can do it without. Now, the reason is, the question you're asking is, what is he doing? 
What is the thorn producing in Paul? And the answer is simple. Thorns, thorns can make you strong. Thorns can make you strong. Pick me up on verse 9 again. And Paul said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I take pleasure in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul right now is demonstrating to us a divine mystery of God. A divine mystery. That our weaknesses are actually an invitation for God's power to rest on us. Our, in, our weakness are a sign for God to give us strength. See, there's some of you guys who are searching for power, searching for strength, and the secret actually might be in your weakness. The secret might be in your insecurity. The secret might be in the place that you're doubting, the place that you're hurting. You see, some of us can't qualify for God's strength because we're uncomfortable being weak. Some of us are too afraid to address our weaknesses. Some of us are too afraid to confront our insecurities. Some of us are too afraid to address our weaknesses. But the text is not only telling you to address it, it's telling you to take joy in it. It's, taking you to it's saying take joy in the fact that you can't figure it out. Take joy in the fact that you can't find a solution. Take joy in the fact that you don't got it all together. Because when you can't figure it out, that's a sign for God's power to show up. That's a sign for God's power to start manifesting in your life. See, this is the product of the thorn. And I know you don't believe me. I know you don't believe me that God actually uses thorns, but Joseph had a thorn. Joseph had a thorn of rejection that led him into slavery and actually imprisoned him behind a prison cell. And that thorn actually invited God's power so that God could elevate him from the prison to the palace. To sit at the right hand of the Pharaoh, Hannah had a thorn. Hannah had a thorn in her womb that, allowed, that made her body not be able to respond in the way that it was designed. She was pleading for God for her child, and she was actually being ridiculed by the people around her. But that weakness produced something in Hannah. That weakness allowed Hannah to get on her knees and go into God to prayer. And, it made, and she prayed so much that she made God a vow. She said, God, if you give me what I want, I'll give it back. I'll give it back. And when God produced in her a son, this son was Samuel, who was among the greatest of prophets. Moses had a thorn. Moses had a thorn of leadership. He was stricken with being, um, having to handle a stiff-necked people, a people that hurt him, a people that ridiculed him. But this thorn affected Paul's prayer life. This thorn made Paul have to, I mean, made Moses have to pray to God consistently day after day after day after day. And Moses prayed so much that he got a glimpse of God's glory. But I tell you, I know a man who's greater than all of these. I know a man who was not given a thorn in the flesh, but this man was given a crown of thorns. <laughs> Y'all not listening to me. I said this man was given a crown of thorns. And this man sat at the right hand of the Father and had all power in his hands. But after seeing our afflictions, he decided to weaken himself. After seeing our condition, the Bible says he emptied himself. 
He emptied himself so much that he went from the mansion in heaven to a manger in Bethlehem. He emptied himself so much that he was the lion of Judah and he became the lamb of God. He emptied himself so much that he stepped on the path of Golgotha. He stepped on the path carrying a cross, being beat by the same people he created. He weakened himself so much that he allowed himself to be wounded for our transgressions, to be bruised for our iniquities. He weakened himself. He weakened himself so much that they hung him high and they stretched him wide and he bowed his head and for me and you, he died. But people of God, that's not how the story ends. See, I want to encourage someone right now that your story ain't over yet. That's not how the story ends because on the third day, this man died as the weakest man but rose as the strongest man. (laughs) He rose, I said, he rose as the strongest man. (laughs) And this man rose and he got up so that you could get up. He got up so that means you don't have to die in depression. You don't have to die in dismay. You don't have to die in anxiety. I'm telling you, he got up so you can too. He got up so that you don't have to stay down. He got up so that you can rise up with him. This man taught us. Good God. This man taught us that we may be weak, but we won't stay weak. (laughs) That we may be in a struggle, but we won't stay as the struggle. This man taught us that it's okay to ask God for strength. Because I'll let you guys know something. God's no to Jesus was a yes to you. (laughs) God's no to Jesus at the garden was a yes to you. And if God is saying no to you, that means he got something better in store. Now, now the question is, the question I have to ask is, who is this man that I'm speaking about? Who is this man that we're talking about? Y'all know his name. You see, some people call him the Prince of Peace. Some people call him a wonderful counselor. Some people call him uh, the line of Judah, but I get to call him friend. I get to call him my savior. I get to call him my way maker. I call him my promise keeper. And I don't know what you need today, but I'm telling you, this man got it. And if you would just call his name, I will decree that the word of the Lord will be true. That those who ever call on the name of the Lord will be saved. They're saving in the name. There's strength in the name. So I don't know what you're going through today, but my encouragement to you is that help is on the way. <laughs> Every head bowed, all eyes closed. Father God, Lord, we're coming before you right now. Lord, some of us are coming before you stricken, battered, beaten, hurting. And many people, Lord, they're hurting so much that they've gone to avenue after avenue trying to find a solution, trying to fix their problem on their own. They've gone to counselors. They've gone to friends. They've gone to loved ones, but none of them can answer the call. But right now, God, we want to come to you. We want to come on the man who was slain on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And Father, Lord, we pray right now, Lord, that You allow us to enjoy being weak. You allow us to enjoy being weak so that we can rejoice when you make us strong. God, I pray, Lord, that we would have the faith that if the thorn gives us more glory, keep it there. If the thorn allows your name to be praised, keep it there. If the thorn brings me closer to you, keep it there. 
Father, I'm praying right now that we have a faith that can outlast the seasons. We can have a faith that outlasts the trouble. We can have faith that outlasts the circumstance. Father, I'm praying that we can have the faith of Jesus. We can have faith in the name of Jesus. So Father, Lord, I know that we may be weak, that we may be torn, but I pray that through the power of your name that we won't stay that way. We put our trust in you, submitting all our cares to you, submitting all our hopes to you, submitting all our dreams to you, because we believe that you have the words of life. We believe that you want to give us life and life more abundantly. So Father, we put our trust in you today. We say this on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.